Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. My dad's dad was a doctor. My wife's dad was a doctor. And some of my best friends in the planet are doctors. And medicine has always fascinated me from like kind of an arm's length. So that's why I really, really wanted to talk to today's guest. But we don't just talk about medicine and healthcare. And uh, she's actually a lovely person, multidimensional. Alice Yu. But for me, it's, you know, it's empowering in a way to know how to do, how to take care of yourself, take care of your residents, and not have to rely so much on partners or dads or people who usually fulfill those roles. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, I'm Stuart Watson. Welcome to Man Listening. I was driving over to Durham to see my kids play volleyball in some kind of pub tournament. They won. I'm very proud. And I also popped over to Chapel Hill to talk to Alice Yu. My kids have such bright friends. Alice Yu just graduated from Duke Med, and she's going up to Northwestern to do her internship, I guess, in pediatrics. And um, just fascinating. She was in my daughter Colleen's a cappella group, you know, so wonderful singer, pianist, musician. And we talk about those fascinating dynamics sitting on her back porch so you'll hear the birds in the background outside off of old Highway 86. Alice Yu, where were you born? Uh, I was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Hospital or home? Hospital. For your mother, your number what of how many? One of one. You are the, the I'm chosen the only, one. Yes, the only one, the chosen one. <laughs> now, was that intentional that she said, one and done, we're going to have one child? I think the long-term plan probably was to have more. Um, but I think just between, you know, my mom, my mom and dad used to live separately a lot. Like his work would always be, be taking him out and it was enough to just have me. So after a while, it kind of just ended up being the plan, even though it wasn't originally the plan. But it's been really, I think, nice. Obviously, I don't know what it's like to have siblings, but I feel like you have good and bad. All the attention is on you. You're the only child. So you have more resources. You have more time and, and like attention at the same time maybe more pressure more expectations but you balance it out so i i mean i've loved being an only child again i don't know what it's like to have uh, siblings was your dad or your mom ever did they ever say i wonder what it would be like to have a boy you know i think my dad had wanted a boy originally um i think it's just a traditional chinese thing um you know even in the states the sons carry the last name forward and so I think there's a little bit of just considering like the legacy I guess you know just never was in the stars for us but I do think he would have liked to have a boy and in some ways I think it benefited me growing up because since I didn't have a brother he 
was able to give me some of that attention and some of the raising that he would maybe do a son versus I think if I had a brother, I would have been maybe shunted to more like feminine and more traditional, uh, like girly things like, oh, you shouldn't learn how to, you know, fix the plumbing or like mow the lawn because you should just, you know, figure out how to do more household things. That was never really my upbringing because there wasn't a boy to kind of help take over or help the dad out when things got broke. Do you know how to fix the plumbing and cut the Oh, rest? some of it. Yeah, like the garbage disposal and I know how to like fix up things in the yard and nothing electrical, but I think that's probably for the better. We get professionals for that, but a lot of household things that my mom, you know, is sad that I have to do because I think in her mind too, she wishes I had less of uh, more traditional male burdens or responsibilities at home. Um, but for me, it's, you know, it's empowering in a way to know how to do, how to take care of yourself, take care of your residents and not have to rely so much on partners or dads or people who usually fulfill those roles. Did your mother tell you anything about her pregnancy, labor and delivery with you? She, so funny story in China, the what the woman with the mother is craving food wise is kind of an indicator of if it's going to be a boy or a girl, um, especially back before like ultrasounds and things where you could kind of just look and see. So I think she told me um, they were expecting twin boys because she got so big, like she just blew up They're like, oh, you must have like two in there. They must be boys, like really strong. And she was craving, I want to say um, spicy food, which meant boy versus I think if you crave more vinegary food I think that was girl that might be swapped I can't remember anyway she craved one of them and then lo and behold a single girl popped out at the end of the day but she I think that was so funny for her that like you know her experience and her getting so much bigger um, and, and expecting boys plural and then having the one uh, was kind of the, the story I hear growing up all the time how many generations have they been in the States? My parents are the first. And how old were they when they came here? I think probably t late 20s, maybe 28 or so. Already married? Yes, married. What brought them here? Partly my mother was, uh, I think, had already had it in her mind for a long time that she wanted to build a life in the U.S. Um, maybe with stories of opportunity, uh, knowing maybe differences in the education system here. But for whatever reason, she already knew she wanted to come to the States. And I think my father was maybe a little more ambivalent about it, but because she felt so strongly, he was like, okay, like I'll pursue my PhD in the US, which is how they originally got over here on a student visa. And then um, they built you know, a life here for as long as I've been here. So 20, almost 27 years now. So Hattiesburg, they were at University of Southern Mississippi? That might have, or Mississippi Tech. Okay. My dad's a polymer scientist. I think he was in some type of tech school. And what did your mother study? Originally, she was also in, in chemistry. I think her Chinese undergrad degree was in chemistry. Ultimately, she switched to accounting here. She wanted less bench work, more desk work. She said being pregnant with me was too too much work to stand all the time. So she just wanted to find a desk job. Um, and from accounting, she ended up moving into finance, which is what she does now. Wow. Any pressure from your parents at all to be a doctor? No. Uh, if anything, I think going back a little bit to gender norms, my parents were a little worried that it would be too taxing. 
because um, at the end of the day, like as the female, you know, I would be the one having to bear a child. Um, and there's a lot of societal pressures in terms of like those early childhood years, a lot of the household, household burden would fall on me. And to pair that with a uh, challenging profession that might be very time intensive, that's known for burnout, um, not even known great for, you know, parental leave or parental uh, kind of perks either. I think they were worried that if I was a doctor, it would be too hard. I think at, at the end of the day, they just want me to be really happy, which I appreciate, you know, they want whatever will make me happiest. So I, it was kind of nice though, because at the end of the day, I feel like me pursuing medicine was really internally motivated because I didn't have any pressure. If anything, I had negative pressure for my parents to pursue uh, medicine. Have you been to China? Have you visited? I've gone um, four or five times every few years. What part of China are they from? It's a massive place. Yeah, my mom's from the north, uh, a big industrial port city called Tianjin, um, about two hours north of Beijing. And then my dad's from the south. Uh, Chengdu is a huge city in the south. How did they meet? In college, yeah. Oh, okay, mm -hmm. brought them together. Yes. Yeah, and do you know what attracted them to one another? What appealed to them? I think my... My dad was, you know, always the smartest kid on the block. He grew up in a pretty rural area, and it was because of his book studies and his grades, he was even able to get out into a big city like Tianjin, which is where they went to college. For my mom, she was a city girl who more or less went to her local college. And so, you know, starting from different points, so therefore kind of the achievement gap in getting to that same college, um, I think my mom quickly saw how studious and how intelligent and capable my dad was and you know her goal was to get out of the country and she would need a partner who was able to help her achieve that goal so I think the initial draw was oh this person is very capable um, also supportive they worked in the same lab and he would always help her out with her experiments and things like that so that was kind of the the starting point of it it's yeah. a common immigrant story I think is that you you know my mother's generation of people they come over to the US and they come from very little. You know, my parents always tell me they came with maybe $200 in their pocket and that was it. Um, and then they built a life here. So I think overcoming those challenges, of course, you always want the best for your children, but especially you want them to do better than you did. You want them to be a step above. So coming here with immigrant parents, or growing up here with immigrant parents, I think that's a really common narrative that they want you to pursue those very safe jobs of like a doctor or a lawyer, things that um, have societal social capital, usually have financial security, because those are things that they weren't able to maybe provide for themselves um, at first, and they want you to have that security. So those pressures aren't always just, oh, I need you to do this because, you know, I think doctors are prestigious and I want them, I want that like title for you. But it's more, this this job provides security, and I didn't have that, and I wish the best for you, and I wish that security for you. So maybe there's this pressure coming from there. When little Alice, when somebody said, little Alice, what do you want to do when you grow up? What would you say? Oh, I had a great line. I think it was like, I'm going to be a doctor or a lawyer or the president. <laughs> Could be all three. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, they're like, well, why not all of them? I'm like, oh, well, that's a good idea, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but 
you were encouraged. Nobody said, that's ridiculous. You could never do that. Nobody ever said that. No, no. And for, you know, maybe because they didn't take me seriously enough to try to tell me that was like going to be very difficult to achieve all three. But yeah, no one ever overtly was like, oh, that's silly. Where'd you go to high school? East Chapel Hill High School. Oh, so how'd they get from Mississippi to, to Chapel Hill? We moved a lot. And I think that also was a big part of my childhood and my identity. Um, my dad's job required us to move quite a bit. So from Mississippi, we moved to Cary, North Carolina for a few years, then to Maryland, like DC area, Pittsburgh, and then back for high school. Were you the only Asian kid in the class? Oh, Asian. Pittsburgh was very white. A lot of uh, Protestant um, white Christians. I remember there was maybe a handful of Asians in the entire middle school. And then there was like one Latino boy, I think, also in the entire middle school. Did you have to put up with stupid questions is what I'm... Probably. Uh, you know, I remember some less than positive experiences that I've had. But overall, like also, what? like in the mall once in in Pittsburgh, you know, I bumped into a lady and it was just it was a harmless bump. Like I was trying to go look at a shirt or something and she's like, oh, my gosh, like go back to China. And I was like, what? And as a middle schooler being yelled at by like an adult, too, like there is age dynamics. I think it was the first time I had really experienced such overt racism. I've read about it, I've seen it in the news, I've heard other people's stories with really just blatant racism, but I'd never really experienced it, I think, until that point. And I was pretty much stunned, you know, I didn't really know how to respond. I was feeling a lot of um, anger, shock, um, sadness, maybe some degree of fear. Um, not, not for my like physical safety, but just the sense that someone could you know, seemed to hate me so much when I have done so little to her. And my mother luckily was nearby and she stepped in and um, kind of, I think, just yelled a little bit at the lady and then we quickly left the store. But I remember feeling really disappointed that there were workers in the store that were kind of like eyeing us and looked a little uncomfortable, but no one stepped in to say anything. No one was like, excuse me, you know, ma'am, like that's inappropriate we don't tolerate that type of language uh, in our store, like you need to leave. There was none of that, which is what I would hope would happen for someone else in that same situation. But yeah, that we didn't get any of that and we just left. And I think part of it is because the population there is so overwhelmingly homogeneously uh, white Protestant Christian. So maybe there is just less experience with that type of situation or maybe there's just less understanding of what you know someone could do to be an ally in that situation but definitely stuck with me did you have high school classmates or college that looked to you to be a kind of interpreter for billions of people that looked to you to try to oh let's ask alice how you know one third of the world lives were you ever like leaned on to be the um the explainer? I think uh, not too much. Maybe the most would be, you know, if we went to a Chinese restaurant, like, oh, what should we get? Which I think to some people that could be very offensive. But at the same time, like if I do have more experience in a certain restaurant, which, you know, 
it wouldn't be out of the question for me to have eaten at, you know, Gourmet Kingdom or like these other Chinese local restaurants more often than they have. I think there are situations where it's acceptable um, and it's completely fine, especially if you have a lasting uh, relationship and there's an understanding that they're not just trying to stereotype you, but they know enough about your background that they just view you to be an expertise in a field. I think that's very different than someone that doesn't know you as well that just says, oh, you look a certain way. Can you tell me about X, Y, Z? But I really didn't have too many of those experiences. And I think part of it was Chapel Hill is pretty liberal compared to at least the rest of North Carolina. And especially in college, I think I tended to surround myself with people who um, would more readily recognize the issues with that type of assumption and with those types of stereotypes. So amongst close friends and people that I ended up spending time with, that wasn't a common issue that I had in high school or college. Does your mother cook traditional dishes? She does. And what's your fave? What's your like, I'm coming home, make blank. <sighs> oh, there's so many good ones. Um, like for your birthday, what's your so for birthdays, you're supposed to have noodles, long noodles to symbolize, symbolize a long life. So for birthdays, it's kind of, uh, you know, a set menu, but you can always add um, like dumplings or usually very festive or for New Year's, you're supposed to have fish and then not eat all of it because the word for fish um, is also the word for like excess. And so the concept if, is if you have excess fish for the new year, then your year will be very bountiful, whether it be, you know, back in the day, perhaps crops and, and yields like that. But um, if you have that excess, then the rest of your year will be very well, kind money. Of comfortable. Right, right. <laughs> we have a money tree in our house, actually. It's growing very well. Um, What's a money tree? It's just a tree that someone decided to call a money tree. It's definitely not the formal scientific name but we were gifted one from my dad's coworker, and my mom has very dutifully nourished it over the years and it's gotten very tall. <laughs> right, yeah. You live with your mom. Um, currently, yeah. I, well, I, when I lived in Durham for med school, I had my own space, but you know, I would see her all the time. Chapel Hill is only seven miles away and um, as the only child especially, I think we're very close. There are some girls in particular that have in their teens and 20s especially this break and sometimes the break is never healed um, to what do you attribute your closeness that you've remained close hmm I think a part of it is well I certainly had a, I would say we had a little bit of a rift when I was in high school over um, mostly like freedom of the amount of autonomy, I think, granted. And it wasn't usually a question of trust um, on my others, my, on my mother's end, but I think just maybe, maybe cultural differences, like wanting to go to coffee shops to do work or wanting to have sleepovers every weekend or um, you know, staying out late at night, just hanging out with your friends. It was just not the type of adolescence that my mother had growing up. And so she didn't quite understand why it was necessary or why I would need to do it all the time. You know, like if you had a sleepover two months ago, why in the world would you need another one this weekend? So 
those types of differences um, would cause some tension. I would see my friends who had maybe more traditional like American childhoods with a lot more autonomy than uh, what I perceived myself to be getting. So in high school, there was a bit of a attention, but then once I graduated to college and was actually living on my own, those of course went out the door because now I'm living in a dorm, um, I'm spending my time as I see fit, and I'm checking in with my mom and I'm calling her frequently because we are very close, but I don't need to ask for those permissions anymore because of that separation. So as soon as I graduated, um, I think we were able to get very close again and have maintained that moving you know, up until now. My dad's father was a small town doctor. My wife's father was a doctor. And my wife and I both thought we would be pre-med. And we both sucked at the early sciences, <laughs> the, the weed out courses. Sure. Um, I see doctors all the time who scored really, really high like they could tell you organic chemistry all day long and their bedside manner and their sense of compassion for people is in the toilet. Yeah. How do you treat people as people? Not to just look at them as sort of numbers or, right. or, or uh, uh, you know, what's on the clipboard. I think that's the million dollar question for <laughs> sure. And But how does Alice do it? <laughs> you know, this might be a bit of a hot take, but I think it is difficult to learn in medical school and I think the way admissions is moving now is they are trying to incorporate those softer skills, the ones that are less quantifiable, like compassion, empathy, into the screening process for admissions, as opposed to saying we can ramp it up and teach it better during medical school. The focus is more on let's make sure we're screening for people who have that ability or at least have enough of that ability ability that we can nurture it but you don't have to start from zero and i think in some ways that makes the most sense there's so much knowledge there's so much book knowledge that you need to learn in medical school it's you don't have too much excess time to learn anything and so to teach something that i think is really comes from within and with with your personality with your experiences with your way you view the world it's hard to teach someone how to view the world in medical school when you're taking tests all the time on important pathologies that you also need to learn so i do think screening for it beforehand having experiences before medical school that really help you grow as a person that are formative that allow you to um you know put yourself in someone else's shoes and say oh, maybe my own perspective is not the only way to think about it. Let me try to see what it's like from other, someone else's perspective. That type of soft skill that's so important, I think needs to be developed to some degree before medical school. In medical school, and especially once you've become a practicing provider, I think it's not only hard to develop that skill, but it's hard to maintain whatever you've already developed. Your classmate Sasha Gumbar was on this podcast yeah. and she pursued law and she talked about having to recommend a plea to an elderly defendant, which would basically mean he would die in prison. Mm. Me and Lorraine, I don't know if you ever heard Colleen talk about Zuzu. Mm -hmm. We had to put Zuzu down yesterday. Oh, I'm sorry. And the vet was 
incredible and the vet tech was in tears and all that. Did you ever have a case like that where you basically were treating someone who was end of life and you were like, we can make you comfortable, but we're not going to perform some heroics. It's really hard. And I, you know, thinking about one in particular, it always makes me sad. And I think that's part of, uh, part of the strength of being a good doctor is that it should always be a little bit hard. You have to learn how to deal with it and work through it, of course, because at the end of the day, you have other patients to take care of. You can't just time out and leave. So you have to be able to have a little meltdown here. Yeah. Um, I know I'm getting teary, but it's who was this person? Um, one of my patients, man or woman, uh, a man, elderly man. He was very special to me because I had actually seen him before. Um, I had worked on one of his surgeries for stomach cancer and he had done pretty well, but as it is with cancer, you know, a lot of cancer comes back and that was the case for him. And the next time I saw him, he, I was working in the emergency room and he came in and he was actively dying and it was hard cause I had, you know, built this relationship with him. So he wasn't just a patient I'd known for 20 minutes. He was a man I'd known for weeks and now he was dying and, um, it was comfort care and it was, uh, it was probably one of the better deaths that you can give someone. I think what you learn quickly in medicine is that it's not always about dying or not dying, but sometimes the more, in quest more important question, the more valuable question is, can you give someone a good death, like a noble death, a death that they would want? And luckily- Keep them comfortable. Keep exactly. Minimize suffering, that it's right. not how many more days you can keep them alive, it's- It's comfort, yeah. Switching from, you know, trying this intervention or that antibiotic, switching from those more harsh interventions to purely comfort, what keeps the patient comfortable. Um, and sometimes that's the most relieving thing you can do for yourself, for the patient, for the patient's family, who's always a part of that situation and grief as well, is learning when, when it's right as a provider, you don't make the decision. We've moved away from, you know, doctor knows best and doctor runs the ship. We've moved towards a integrated um, patient centered. We're part of a team. Let's talk about it. What are your values approach? So helping your patient come to terms sometimes with the reality of their physiology. You know, you don't give false hope. You don't say, oh, you have metastatic cancer, but if we just keep giving you chemo, you know, you might get better and live your life like you did. Um, that That's not reasonable. Um, it's not realistic. And as the medical provider, your job is to give facts in a field that is really bizarre and foreign to most people. Um, and then they decide. And I think for this patient, I think he had enough time to live and think through the reality of living with cancer that he was ready to move to comfort care, which I think was probably the best decision for him. He was very sick. There was not anything that we could have done to prolong his life. And so I think moving to make sure that he was comfortable was the right decision. And he was comfortable with that decision as well. So 
you know, I know you're one doc, but what are your observations about kind of the system as it pertains to end of life? You know, it's interesting because I think although our system and the policies we have in place do value life over anything, um, you know, the lack of physician-assisted suicides or even though the structures are, you know, very supportive of one thing, which is continuing to live at whatever cost, most of the providers I've worked with tend to skew the other way in or not, I wouldn't say skew the other way. I think the providers themselves have a much more um, well-rounded perspective. Um, most doctors are not gonna say the best thing to do is to keep fighting at all costs, all the time. Um, because that's never part of, that's never the whole story. There is human suffering, there is, you know, the desire, as you mentioned sometimes, of saying, you know, I've had enough and I don't want a pacemaker put in at 103 um, and I think most physicians would say yeah like let's talk about comfort care let's talk about what's important to you right now and based on that what makes the most sense but I think where it becomes very tricky is that you don't want to give your patients a sense that you've given up on them and that's a fine line to draw um, Obviously, if you have a very positive relationship, then that's easier. But if you maybe don't know the patient very well, maybe you're just coming on, uh, you're a new doctor, and all of a sudden you're having this conversation and it's like, let's stop care and let's just do pain control. That can be very jarring. As a patient, you don't want to feel like your team has given up on you. The families also don't want to give that sense of, we've given up on you, our loved one. And I think usually the families are the more difficult people to to convince that maybe less aggressive interventions are the correct way to go or the best way to go for this particular patient um, because of that guilt, I think. It's very difficult. It's important to talk to families through a death process because there is almost always a sense of guilt. What if I had done this earlier? What if I had you know brought them in for a checkup earlier? What if I had done this or that? Or, how can I possibly just let them die when there's still more that could be done? That sense of giving up is really hard um, to get past, even for family members that are doctors that live through this on the other side of things. It's still hard to get past that sense of, I'm giving up on someone that I love. And so I think that is also, as much as the the structures that are in place for keeping someone alive and maybe not valuing quality of life as much, there are emotional, um, you know, barriers as well that sometimes can muddy the water and maybe delay a transition to something like hospice or comfort care um, until much later than it needed to be. Is there a specialty that speaks to you right now? Kind of generally pediatrics. I'll be starting pediatric residency um, this month, but within pediatrics, I have not decided yet. I think I'd like to subspecialize in something, maybe adolescent care or um, hemonc, hematology, oncology. But I haven't had enough experience in those fields, I think, to nail it down. So hopefully my first year of residency, I'll be able to have a clearer idea of the future. Nothing can break your heart like a little kid with cancer. Yeah, that's a, 
it is really hard. I actually never thought I would like pediatrics in general for that reason, thinking about uh, innocent children living with, um, you know, chronic diseases or very serious acute issues. It just seemed too sad. Uh, and then I got into my pediatrics rotation and somehow the meaning, the meaningfulness of it, the fulfillment you get from helping these children and their families outweighed kind of the horribleness of it all um, for me. So that's why I ended up choosing pediatrics and maybe the same way with cancer. I'm not sure yet. That might be a different beast, but I'm thinking maybe because it is so meaningful to help kids uh, bounce back. And kids do bounce back a lot better than adults. You know, Hemonk is, is very sad and it can be very depressing, but you have some amazing cases as well that could get you through, a whole, you know, a week of maybe less ideal bad news, but then you have that one kid that gets cured and you're like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you've got eight-year-olds who have more courage and have seen more challenges than 80-year-olds. You know, they've been called upon to step up again and again and again. You know, before puberty, they've been called mm -hmm. upon to face down death again and again and again. And they become these kind of old souls who, who just, just exhibit, you know, they're inspirational to some of these kids. They're, it's amazing. Right, yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, you choosing or not choosing to do a field doesn't mean that there won't be kids who don't have cancer, right? If there are no cancer doctors for children, there will still be patients that are children who have cancer. And so if I think I can do a good job, if I think I can be that really supportive, empathetic physician to a kid who's going through a really tough time, it's worth it to me, I think. <laughs> when I get there, I'll let you know. But I think it would be worth it to, to stomach some of that um, unfairness in the world to say at least I'm caring for someone who needs to be cared for. How do you get trained to not become burnt up or burnt out? To not become so thick-skinned that you're no longer capable of you know, kind of human compassion that you need? That's another million dollar question. <laughs> we figure out the answer. Let all of the medical schools and but, hospitals know. <laughs> how does Dr. Alice do that? You know, for me, I think what has been effective so far and what I plan to hold on to moving forward as I see more and more is preventative care. Um, trying to be readily, you know, honest with the pressures that come to you before they get to you. Understanding the effects that loss and trauma can have before it's already kind of sunk itself into you. Um, the more, like through medical school, for example, I used to think all the time about how one of my biggest fears was losing my empathy and becoming cold and becoming tired and uh, being someone who I didn't want to be and I worried so much about it that I think it was very protective for me because I was always checking in with myself oh like am I acting cranky because I'm tired or am I hungry or you know am I still giving this patient the benefit of the doubt that I think they deserve 
despite you know all these other things that maybe are going on in my life i don't want it to bleed into my relationships with my patients and i was always doing that check-in um and i i think it worked um hopefully it worked i'm a firm advocate of um, having a therapist even if you don't think there's something acutely that you need to work through just having someone that knows you well that you can always talk to um, touch base everyone has stress in their life everyone therefore can benefit I think from having a therapist the other thing that has been effective is having mentors um, whether that be people much older than you and you know mid-career late career or having simply you know other residents other med students just a year or two ahead of you that can say you know I've been in a similar situation do you want to talk about it this is how I felt at the time um, if you need a, an ear, like I'm here for you. Those interpersonal relationships are, I think one of the mainstays as well that I've seen in the healthcare profession. Um, and it can be very effective. And I think part of the reason they're so effective is because it's hard to standardize uh, something preventative of burnout in medicine. People uh, process differently. People um, have different thresholds or different ways that support can be effective for them. So I think standardizing it has been really challenging and ineffective, and there's not really good prevention of burnout at a macro level. Um, and so you kind of have to rely on those smaller uh, levels of support, friends, family, coworkers, therapists. That's what I've seen in my experience. I was treated once by a guy who would prod my feet, poke my feet really hard, mm -hmm. and tell me about the health of my internal organs based on yeah. pinching and poking my feet. Um, what a lot of people will just like dismiss something like that out of hand. I'm wondering what is Chinese medicine and what, if anything, does it have to teach Western medicine? It's a really good question, and I think I have um, tried to develop my approach to that over the past many years, and I'm still working on kind of how I integrate more or less traditional Western um, healthcare into how I view health, um, which is a long way of saying I don't have the perfect answer, but from just growing up at home and having more traditional medicines and things that I use, you know, as a kid growing up, I think I've always been more open-minded to the less quote westernized medicine that exists in the world. And um, I think there is a, a strong stigma that's, um, I don't know exactly where it comes from, maybe xenophobia or something, but there definitely is a stigma that's widely prevalent um, towards things that seem more traditional or, um, what is the word, like naturopathic and, um, you know, I think number one is acknowledging that that exists. And then the second, I think, is to kind of dial that back to saying the same way that my values aren't necessarily my patient's values, um, and that's okay and that's correct, I can't impose my values on someone, is allowing space for people to have their own beliefs and that could include healing traditions. Um, if someone ha has something that you're not familiar with as a Western doctor but has worked for them 
much of their life and you know it's something that they believe in and I just I just can't imagine a situation where you have the position to say that's wrong stop you know unless it's maybe something that there's data for but I think data and research is another issue when it comes to Western medicine versus non-Westernized medicine is that a lot of that stigma comes from, oh, well, we have data about X, Y, Z. So therefore your, your herb that you're using or your, um, you know, process that you're doing for labor or whatever, there's no data for it. So therefore it must be fake. But I think the arrogance of saying after, you know, thousands and thousands of years of some culture allow that allowed this particular herb or this particular medicine or this particular way or process if it has survived thousands of years of another culture how can you just dismiss it so quickly right like there must have been something that allowed that particular thing to continue on for generations there's more to alice U than the md so i would be remiss if i didn't say favorite broadway musical Oh, that's so hard. Um, when I lived in New York for my gap year, I tried to go all the time and everything blew my socks off. I would probably say um, Carol King, the musical, or is it called A Beautiful Life, Carol King? I can't remember, but it's about Carol King. And it was my favorite because I did not know um, Carol King at all before going in. I tried to get lottery tickets failed, ended up looking for the cheapest Broadway tickets I could find since I was already there. Went in, no idea, no expectations, and it just blew me away. The music, the acting, the dancing, the story, I think was really brought it all together for me is being able to hear these songs in relation to the events going on in her life um, added such depth to each already beautiful you know, work of music. Um, and I came out of it a, a huge Carol King fan, um, obviously. Did so, you buy Tapestry or did you download Tapestry? I did. I did. On Spotify, I was listening to it on repeat for a couple of weeks. One of the greatest albums ever. It, and I had, you know, never heard of it before. I put so. it next to Joni Mitchell Blue. Oh, really? Joni mm. Mitchell is also a great one. Yeah. Um, one of the greats. So. Your senior solo in the acapella group was... Uh, oh my gosh, um, John Legend, something about like, you're going to miss me when I'm gone. I don't even know what it was called anymore. And or, you chose that because? I think it was, I love John Legend. I love his voice. He's very soulful. Um, it was a good range for me as an alto. And also I thought it had a bit of, you know, graduation sentimental vibes, like I'm leaving, but I've loved you all and we've had this beautiful time together and something along those lines. <laughs> Most overdone cliche of an acapella song that you would veto, you would blackball if they brought it up. Oh gosh. Um, I don't know. I think I'm the type who would never say never. So I would never veto something completely. I could always be convinced into it. But in terms of uh, maybe corny song. I'm thinking of one that we did. Brown Eyed Girl, I think, is done a lot. But it's a good song, and I would never say you shouldn't do it. But it is done often in the acapella world. Were there acapella arrangements that really surprised you that you said, 
oh, that's not an acapella song. You can never do that. And then you saw, wow, I, I could never believe that they turned it into acapella, but they did it. Yeah, there was one, um, I saw a Harvard acapella group doing this jazz, uh, like, I don't even know what the song was, but I think jazz as a style is difficult to um, really capture with human voices. And so, you know, for better or for worse, maybe I was a little bit too close-minded to it. My group probably could have pulled it off. We but had jazz of gave us scat. It gave us, you know, that right, kind of... Right, right. I mean, the vocals, of course, um, could be replicated, but I think the instrumental, uh, like, atmosphere of jazz music, having, like, the soft drums with the little, I don't know what it's called, it looks like a brush, it, maybe it's called a brush, like, on the drums, or having the cello, which you can maybe replicate with a bass, but I think I, I've always considered it very hard to replicate an acapella, but I did see this group do a very good job with it and kind of changed my mind about the concept. Is hip-hop underrepresented in acapella nowadays? Overrepresented? About right? I am not the expert on the matter. I would say my group did some hip-hop. Um, I think it's important to be cognizant also of who's in your group and who's performing who's representing um like the song and the story you're trying to tell like there are some songs strange fruit comes to mind immediately where if you didn't have any black singers in your acapella group to sing that song seems like it's out of your um like it's not something that you could do respectfully i get it i've had a singer on this podcast yeah who was african-american talk about the appropriation of strange fruit right written by a white man oh i didn't even know that um so yeah you know i think that when it comes to song selection part of it is just what do you like what do you want to sing but there should be um, a lot of attention and thought that goes into what is appropriate for us to sing as well you know we i'm not saying white men should sing it (laughs) yes yes i'm not (laughs) saying white men should sing it i'm saying it it has a very unusual history that song right right um same thing with you know we had uh really beautiful songs that were written by gay artists Mm -hmm. that were about their story their experience of being gay and you know i personally think it would sit a little uneasy with me if we didn't have one any gay members in our in our group which which was not the case we did um, and then also to have someone sing it as a soloist that didn't really understand the message of it. There, there's a lot with music um, beyond the, the notes and the lyrics, the intention and the story. Um, you need to be true to that, whatever it is. So with hip hop, you know, I think you can pull off hip hop without being a fully black group. You know, that's not what I'm saying at all. But I think being intentional and being thoughtful about uh, maybe the song, the meaning behind it, the artist, the story before you go and do something without thinking about it. If we get struck by lightning today, sure. oh, and the gosh. only thing that survives is this little piece of audio, oh. uh, what is your legacy? Um, oh, well, I think when I think of legacy, I think of the relationships you build in your life. And you know, if we got struck by lightning, hopefully not everyone else got struck by lightning. And I think living in the memories of my, my friends and my loved ones is uh, the best that I could probably do for this world. 
Dr. Alice Yu, I think you'll make a superb physician. Thank you. I think you already do. I think you have compassion and everything. Thank you for making time. Oh, of course. This has been great. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Dr. Yu. Proud to know you. One quick program note. There's going to be a change. Uh, we're going to start calling Man Listening by a different name, which is more reflective of what it is, really. I'm going to start calling it In Her Words, because I've been told that people are put off by the word man. So, okay. And we're going to be doing some promotion around that, etc. So, thanks for sticking with us. It'll be the same great content, only focused in the name, too, on the women we interview, in her words. Thanks so much. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who supported us from the very, very beginning. I really appreciate it. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks. <laughs>